0: Chapter 14 of The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects by Edward Ruppelt Chapter 14 Digesting the Data It was soon after we had written a finis to the case of the Scoutmaster, that I went into Washington to give another briefing on the latest UFO developments. Several reports had come in during early August that had been read with a good deal of interest in the military and other governmental agencies. By late August 1952, several groups in Washington were following the UFO situation very closely the sighting that had stirred everyone up came from Haneda Air Force Base, now Tokyo International Airport, in Japan. Since the sighting came from outside the U.S., we couldn't go out and investigate it, but the intelligence officers in the Far East Air Force had done a good job, so we had the complete story of this startling account of an encounter with the UFO. Only a few minor questions had been unanswered, and a quick wire to F.E.A.F. brought back these missing data. Normally, it took up to three months to get routine questions back and forth, but this time the exchange of wires took only a matter of hours. Several months after the sighting, I talked to one of the F.E.A.F. intelligence officers who had investigated it, and in his estimation, it was one of the best to come out of the Far East. The first people to see the UFO were two control tower operators who were walking across the ramp at the airbase, heading toward the tower to start the midnight shift. They were about a half hour early, so they weren't in any big hurry to get up into the tower, at least not until they saw a large, brilliant light off to the northeast over tokyo bay they stopped to look at the light for a few seconds thinking that it might be an exceptionally brilliant star but both men had spent many lonely nights in a control tower when they had nothing to look at except stars and they had never seen anything this bright before besides the light was moving the two men had lined it up with the corner of a hangar and could see that it was continually moving closer and drifting a little off to the right in a minute they had run across the ramp up the several hundred steps to the tower and were looking at the light through seven by fifty binoculars both of the men and the two tower operators whom they were relieving got a good look at the ufo the light was circular in shape and had a constant brilliance It appeared to be the upper portion of a large, round, dark shape, which was about four times the diameter of the light itself. As they watched, the UFO moved in closer, or at least it appeared to be getting closer, because it became more distinct. When it moved in, the men could see a second and dimmer light on the lower edge of the dark, shadowy portion. In a few minutes, the UFO had moved off to the east, getting dimmer and dimmer as it disappeared. The four tower men kept watching the eastern sky, and suddenly the light began to reappear. It stayed in sight a few seconds, was gone again, and then for the third time it came back, heading toward the air base. This time, one of the tower operators picked up a microphone called the pilot of a C-54 that was crossing Tokyo Bay and asked if he could see the light. The pilot didn't see anything unusual. At 11.45 p.m., according to the logbook in the tower, one of the operators called a nearby radar site and asked if they had an unidentified target on their scopes. They did. The FEAF intelligence officers who investigated the sighting made a special effort to try to find out if the radar's unidentified target and the light were the same object. They deduced that they were, since when the tower operators and the radar operators compared notes over the telephone, the light and the radar target were in the same location and were moving in the same direction. For about five minutes the radar tracked the UFO as it cut back and forth across the central part of Tokyo Bay, sometimes traveling so slowly that it almost hovered, and then speeding up to 300 miles an hour. All of this time the tower operators were watching the light through binoculars. Several times when the UFO approached the radar station, once it came within ten miles, a radar operator went outside to find out if he could see the light, but no one at the radar site ever saw it. Back at the air base, the tower operators had called other people, and they saw the light. Later on, the tower man said that he had the distinct feeling that the light was highly directional, like a spotlight. Some of the people who were watching thought that the UFO might be a lighted balloon, so for the sake of comparison, a lighted weather balloon was released. But the light on the balloon was much more yellowish than the UFO, and in a matter of seconds it had traveled far enough away that the light was no longer visible. This gave the observers a chance to compare the size of the balloon and the size of the dark, shadowy part of the UFO. Had the UFO been 10 miles away, it would have been 50 feet in diameter. Three minutes after midnight, an F-94 scrambled from nearby Johnson Air Force Base came into the area. The ground controller sent the F-94 south of Yokohama, up Tokyo Bay, and brought him in behind the UFO. The second that the ground controller had the F-94 pilot lined up and told him that he was in line for a radar run, the radar operator in the rear seat of the F-94 called out that he had a lock-on. His target was at 6,000 yards, 10 degrees to the right and 10 degrees below the F-94. The lock-on was held for 90 seconds as the ground controller watched both the UFO and the F-94 make a turn and come toward the ground radar site. Just as the target entered the ground clutter, the permanent and solid target was near the radar station caused by the radar beams striking the ground. The lock-on was broken. The target seemed to pull away swiftly from the jet interceptor, At almost this exact instant, the tower operators reported that they had lost visual contact with the UFO. The tower called the F-94 and asked if they had seen anything visually during the chase. They hadn't. The F-94 crew stayed in the area 10 or 15 more minutes, but couldn't see anything or pick up any more targets on their radar. Soon after the F-94 left the area, both the ground radar and the tower operators picked up the ufo again in about two minutes radar called the tower to say that their target had just broken into three pieces and that the three pieces spaced about a quarter of a mile apart were leaving the area going northeast seconds later tower operators lost sight of the light the feaf intelligence officers had checked every possible angle but they could offer nothing to account for the sighting there were lots of opinions weather targets for example but once again the chances of a weather target's being in exactly the same direction as a bright star and having the star appear to move with the false radar target aren't too likely to say the least and then the same type of thing had happened twice before inside of a month's time, once in California and once in Michigan. As one of the men at the briefing I gave said, "'It's incredible, and I can't believe it, but those boys in FEAF are in a war. They're veterans, and by damn, I think they know what they're talking about when they say they've never seen anything like this before.'" I could go into a long discourse on the possible explanations for this sighting. I heard many, but in the end there would be only one positive answer. The UFO could not be identified as something we knew about. It could have been an interplanetary spaceship. Many people thought this was the answer and were all for sticking their necks out and establishing a category of conclusions for UFO reports and labeling it spacecraft. But the majority ruled, and a UFO remained an unidentified flying object. On my next trip to the Pentagon, I spent the whole day talking to Major Dewey Fournet and two of his bosses, Colonel W.A. Adams and Colonel Weldon Smith, about the UFO subject in general. One of the things we talked about was a new approach to the UFO problem, that of trying to prove that the motion of a UFO as it flew through the air was intelligently controlled. I don't know who would get credit for originating the idea of trying to analyze the motion of the UFOs. It was one of those kinds of ideas that are passed around with everyone adding a few modifications. We'd been talking about making a study of this idea for a long time, but we hadn't had many reports to work with. But now, with the mass of data that we had accumulated in June and July and August, the prospects of such a study looked promising. The basic aim of the study would be to learn whether the motion of the reported UFOs was random or ordered. Random motion is an unordered, helter-skelter motion very similar to a swarm of gnats or flies milling around. There is no apparent pattern or purpose to their flight paths. But take, for example, swallows flying around a chimney. They wheel, dart, and dip, but if you watch them closely, they have a definite pattern in their movements. An ordered motion. The definite pattern is intelligently controlled because they are catching bugs, or getting in line to go down the chimney. By the fall of 1952, we had a considerable number of well-documented reports in which the UFOs made a series of maneuvers. If we could prove that these maneuvers were not random, but ordered, it would be proof that the UFOs were things that were intelligently controlled. During our discussion, Major Fournay brought up two reports in which the UFO seemed to know what it was doing, and wasn't just aimlessly darting around. One of these was the recent sighting from Haneda Air Force Base, Japan, and the other was the incident that happened on the night of July 29th, when an F-94 attempted to intercept a UFO over eastern Michigan. In both cases, radar had established the track of the UFO. In the Haneda incident, according to the sketch of the UFO's track, each turn the UFO made was constant, and the straight legs between the turns were about the same length. The sketch of the UFO's flight path as it moved back and forth over Tokyo Bay reminded me very much of the crisscross search patterns we used to fly during World War II when we were searching for the crew of a ditched airplane. The only time the UFO seriously deviated from this pattern was when the F-94 got on its tail. The Michigan sighting was even better, however. In this case, there was a definite reason for every move that the UFO made, It made a 180-degree turn because the F-94 was closing on it head-on. It alternately increased and decreased its speed, but every time it did this, it was because the F-94 was closing in, and it evidently put on speed to pull out ahead far enough to get out of range of the F-94's radar. To say that this motion was random, and that it was just a coincidence that the UFO made the 180 degree turn when the F-94 closed in head-on, and that it was just a coincidence that the UFO speeded up every time the F-94 began to get within radar range, is pushing the chance of coincidence pretty hard. The idea of the motion analysis study sounded interesting to me but we were so busy on project blue book we didn't have time to do it so major Fournet offered to look into it further and i promised him all the help we could give him in the meantime my people in project blue book were contacting various scientists in the u.s. and indirectly in europe telling them about our data and collecting opinions we did this in two ways In the United States, we briefed various scientific meetings and groups. To get the word to the other countries, we enlisted the gratis aid of scientists who were planning to attend conferences or meetings in Europe. We would brief these European-bound scientists on all the aspects of the UFO problem so they could informally discuss the problem with their European colleagues. The one thing about these briefings that never failed to amaze me, although it happened time and time again, was the interest in UFOs within scientific circles. As soon as the word spread that Project Blue Book was giving official briefings to groups with the proper security clearances, we had no trouble in getting scientists to swap free advice for a briefing. I might add that we briefed only groups who were engaged in government work, and who had the proper security clearances, solely because we could discuss any government project that might be of help to us in pinning down the UFO. Our briefings weren't just squeezed in, either. In many instances, we would arrive at a place to find that a whole day had been set aside to talk about UFOs. And never once did I meet anyone who laughed off the whole subject of flying saucers even though publicly these same people had jovially sloughed off the press with answers of hallucinations, absurd, or a waste of time and money. They weren't wild-eyed fans, but they were certainly interested. Colonel S. H. Kirkland and I once spent a whole day briefing and talking to the Beacon Hill group, the code name for a collection of some of the world's leading scientists and industrialists. This group, formed to consider and analyze the toughest of military problems, took a very serious interest in our project and gave much good advice. At Los Alamos and again at Sandia Base, our briefings were given in auditoriums to standing room only crowds. In addition, I gave my briefings at National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics Laboratories, at Air Research and Development Centers, at Office of Naval Research Facilities, and at the Air Force University. Then, we briefed special groups of scientists. Normally, scientists are a cautious lot and stick close to proven facts, keeping their personal opinions confined to small groups of friends but when they know that there is a sign on a door that says classified briefing in progress inhibitions collapse like the theories that explain all the ufo's away people say just what they think i could jazz up this part of the ufo story as so many other historians of the ufo have and say that doctor so-and-so believes that the reported flying saucers are from outer space or that Dr. Hoositz is firmly convinced that Mars is inhabited. I talked to plenty of Dr. So-and-sos who believed that flying saucers were real and who were absolutely convinced that other planets or bodies in the universe were inhabited. But we were looking for proven facts and not just personal opinions. However, some of the questions we asked the scientists Had to be answered by personal opinions because the exact answers didn't exist. When such questions came up, about all we could do was to try to get the largest and most representative cross-section of personal opinions upon which to base our decisions. In this category of questions, probably the most frequently discussed was the possibility that other celestial bodies in the universe were populated with intelligent beings the exact answer to this is that no one knows but the consensus was that it wouldn't be at all surprising all the briefings we were giving added to our workload because ufo reports were still coming in in record amounts the lack of newspaper publicity after the washington sightings had had some effect because the number of reports dropped from nearly five hundred in july to 175 in August, but this was still far above the normal average of 20 to 30 reports a month. September 1952 started out with a rush, and for a while it looked as if UFO sightings were on the upswing again. For some reason, we never could determine why, we suddenly began to get reports from all over the southeastern United States every morning for about a week or two we'd have a half dozen or so new reports georgia and alabama led the field many of the reports came from people in the vicinity of the then new super hush-hush atomic energy commission facility at savannah river georgia and many were coming from the port city of mobile alabama our first thought when the reports began to pour in was that the newspapers in these areas were possibly stirring things up with scarce stories. But our newspaper clipping service covered the majority of the southern papers, and although we kept looking for publicity, none showed up. In fact, the papers only barely mentioned one or two of the sightings. As they came in, each of the sighting reports went through our identification process, they were checked against all balloon flights aircraft flights celestial bodies and the m o file but more than half of them came out as unknowns when the reports first began to come in i had called the intelligence officers at all of the major military installations in the southeast unsuccessfully trying to find out if they could shed any light on the cause of the sightings one man the man who was responsible for UFO reports made to Brookley Air Force Base, just outside of Mobile, Alabama, took a dim view of all the proceedings. "'They're all nuts,' he said. About a week later, his story changed. It seems that one night, about the fourth night in a row that UFOs had been reported near Mobile, this man and several of his assistants decided to try to see these famous UFOs. About 10 o'clock p.m., the time that the UFOs were usually reported, they were gathered around the telephone in the man's office at Brooklyn Air Force Base. Soon, a report came in. The first question that the investigator who answered the phone asked was, Can you still see it? The answer was yes so the officer took off to see the ufo the same thing happened twice more and two more officers left for different locations the fourth time the phone rang the call was from the base radar station they were picking up a ufo on radar so the boss himself took off he saw the ufo in air out over mobile bay and he saw the return of the UFO on the Radar Scope. The next morning, he called me at ATIC, and for over an hour he told me what had happened. Never have I talked to four more ardent flying saucer believers. We did quite a bit of work on the combination radar-visual sighting at Berkeley. First of all, radar-visual sightings were the best type of UFO sightings we received. There are no explanations for how radar can pick up a UFO target that is being watched visually at the same time. Maybe I should have said, there are no proven explanations on how this can happen, because, like everything else associated with the UFO, there was a theory. During the Washington National sightings, several people proposed the idea that the same temperature inversion layer that was causing the radar beam to bend down and pick up a ground target was causing the target to appear to be in the air. They went on to say that we couldn't get a radar visual sighting unless the ground target was a truck, car, house, or something else that was lighted and could be seen at a great distance. The second reason the Brookley Air Force Base sighting was so interesting was that it knocked this theory cold. The radar at Brookley Air Force Base was so located that part of the area that it scanned was over Mobile Bay. It was in this area that the UFO was detected. We thought of the theory that the same inversion layer that bent the radar beam also caused the radar to appear to be in the air and we began to do a little checking. There was a slight inversion, but, according to our calculations, it wasn't enough to affect the radar. More important was the fact that in the areas where the target appeared, there were no targets to pick up, let alone lighted targets. We checked and rechecked, and found that at the time of the sighting there were no ships, buoys or anything else that would give a radar return in the area of Mobile Bay in which we were interested. Although this sighting wasn't as glamorous as some we had, it was highly significant because it was possible to show that the UFO couldn't have been a lighted surface target. While we were investigating the sighting, we talked to several electronics specialists about our radar visual sightings. ONE OF THE MOST FREQUENT COMMENTS WE HEARD WAS, WHY DO ALL OF THESE RADAR VISUAL SIGHTINGS OCCUR AT NIGHT? THE ANSWER WAS SIMPLE. THEY DON'T. ON AUGUST 1ST, JUST BEFORE DAWN, AN ADC RADAR STATION OUTSIDE OF YAK, MONTANA, ON THE EXTREME NORTHERN BORDER OF THE UNITED STATES, PICKED UP A UFO the report was very similar to the sighting at Brooklyn, except it happened in the daylight and instead of seeing a light the crew at the radar station saw a dark cigar-shaped object right where the radar had the ufo pinpointed what these people saw is a mystery to this day late in september i made a trip out to headquarters a d c to brief General Chidlaw and his staff on the past few months' UFO activity. Our plans for periodic briefings, which we had originally set up with ADC, had suffered a bit in the summer because we were all busy elsewhere. They were still giving us the fullest cooperation, but we hadn't been keeping them as thoroughly read in as we would have liked to, I'd finished the briefing and was eating lunch at the Officers' Club with Major Vern Sadowski, Project Blue Book's liaison officer in ADC Intelligence, and several other officers. I had a hunch that something was bothering these people. Then finally Major Sadowski said, Look, Roop, are you giving us the straight story on these UFOs? i thought he meant that i was trying to spice things up a little so i said that since he had copies of most of our reports and had read them he should know that i was giving them the facts straight across the board then one of the other officers at the table cut in that's just the point we do have the reports and we have read them none of us can understand why intelligence is so hesitant to accept the fact that something we just don't know about is flying around in our skies, unless you are trying to cover up something big." Everyone at the table put in his ideas. One radar man said that he'd looked over several dozen radar reports, and that his conclusion was that the UFOs couldn't be anything but interplanetary spaceships. He started to give his reasons when another radar man leaped into the conversation. This man said that he'd read every radar report, too, and that there wasn't one that couldn't be explained as a weather phenomenon. Even the radar visual sightings. In fact, he wasn't even convinced that we had ever gotten such a thing as radar visual sighting. He wanted to see proof that an object that was seen visually was the same object that the radar had picked up. Did we have it? I got back into the discussion at this point with the answer. No, we didn't have proof, if you want to get technical about the degree of proof needed. But we did have reports where the radar and visual bearings of the UFO coincided almost exactly. Then we had a few reports where airplanes had followed the UFOs, and the maneuvers of the UFO that the pilot reported were the same as the maneuvers of the UFO that was being tracked by radar. A lieutenant colonel who had been sitting quietly by interjected a well-chosen comment, It seems the difficulty that Project Blue Book faces is what to accept and what not to accept as proof the colonel had hit the proverbial nail on its proverbial head then he went on everyone has a different idea of what proof really is some people think we should accept a new model of an airplane after only five or ten hours of flight testing this is enough proof for them that the airplane will fly but others wouldn't be happy unless it was flight tested for five or ten years These people have set an unreasonably high value on the word proof. The answer is somewhere in between these two extremes. But where is this point when it comes to UFOs? There was about a 30-second pause for thought after the colonel's little speech. Then someone asked, "'What about these recent sightings at Mainbrace?' In late September 1952, the NATO naval forces had held maneuvers off the coast of Europe. They were called Operation Mainbrace. Before they had started, someone in the Pentagon had half-seriously mentioned that naval intelligence should keep an eye open for UFOs, but no one really expected the UFOs to show up. Nevertheless, once again, the UFOs were their old, unpredictable selves. They were there. On September 20th, a U.S. newspaper reporter aboard an aircraft carrier in the North Sea was photographing a carrier takeoff in color when he happened to look back down the flight deck and saw a group of pilots and flight deck crew watching something in the sky. He went back to look and there was a silver sphere moving across the sky just behind the fleet of ships the object appeared to be large plenty large enough to show up in a photo so the reporter shot several pictures they were developed right away and turned out to be excellent he had gotten the superstructure of the carrier in each one and judging by the size of the object in each successive photo one could see that it was moving rapidly. The intelligence officers aboard the aircraft studied the photos. The object looked like a balloon. From its size, it was apparent that, if it were a balloon, it would have been launched from one of the ships, so the word went out on the TBS radio, "'Who launched a balloon?' The answer came back on the TBS, "'Nobody!' Naval intelligence double-checked, triple-checked, and quadruple-checked every ship near the carrier, but they could find no one who had launched the UFO. We kept after the Navy. The pilots and the flight deck crew who saw the UFO had mixed feelings. Some were sure that the UFO was a balloon, while others were just as sure that it couldn't have been. It was traveling too fast, and although it resembled a balloon in some ways, it was far from being identical to the hundreds of balloons that the crew had seen the aerologists launch. We probably wouldn't have tried so hard to get a definite answer to the main brace photos if it hadn't been for the events that took place during the rest of the operation, I explained to the group of ADC officers. The day after the photos had been taken, six RAF pilots flying a formation of jet fighters over the North Sea saw something coming from the direction of the main brace fleet. It was a shiny, spherical object, and they couldn't recognize it as anything friendly, so they took after it. But in a minute or two, they lost it. When they neared their base, one of the pilots looked back and saw that the UFO was now following him. He turned, but the UFO also turned, and again it outdistanced the meteor in a matter of minutes. Then on the third consecutive day, a UFO showed up near the fleet, this time over Topcliff Aerodrome in England. A pilot in a meteor was scrambled and managed to get his jet fairly close to the UFO, close enough to see that the object was round, silvery, and white, and seemed to rotate around its vertical axis and sort of wobble. But before he could close in to get a really good look, it was gone. It was these sightings i was told by an raf exchange intelligence officer in the pentagon that caused the raf to officially recognize the ufo by the time i'd finished telling about the main brace sightings it was after the lunch hour in the club and we were getting some get the hell out of here looks from the waiters who wanted to clean up the dining room but before i could suggest that we leave major sadowski repeated his original question the one that started the whole discussion are you holding out on us i gave him an unqualified no we wanted more positive proof and until we had it ufo's would remain unidentified flying objects and no more the horizontal shaking of heads illustrated some of the group's thinking We had plans for getting more positive proof, however, and I said that just as soon as we returned to Major Sadowski's office, I'd tell them what we contemplated doing. We moved out onto the sidewalk in front of the club and, after discussing a few more sightings, went back into the security area to Sadowski's office, and I laid out our plans. First of all, in November or December, The U.S. was going to shoot the first H-bomb during Project Ivy. Although this was top secret at the time, it was about the most poorly kept secret in history. Everybody seemed to know all about it. Some people in the Pentagon had the idea that there were beings, earthly or otherwise, who might be interested in our activities in the Pacific, as they seemed to be in Operation Mainbrace consequently project blue book had been directed to get transportation to the test area to set up a reporting net brief people on how to report and analyze their reports on the spot secondly project blue book was working on plans for an extensive system to track ufos by instruments brigadier general garland who had been general samford's deputy director for production and who had been riding herd on the ufo project for general samford was now chief at atic having replaced colonel dunn who went to the air war college general garland had long been in favor of trying to get some concrete information either positive or negative about the ufo's this planned tracking system would replace the diffraction grid cameras that were still being developed at ATIC. Thirdly, as soon as we could, we were planning to gather together a group of scientists and let them spend a full week or two studying the UFO problem. When I left ADC, Major Sadowski and crew were satisfied that we weren't just sitting around twiddling our UFO reports. During the fall of 1952, reports continued to drop off steadily. By December, we were down to the normal average of 30 per month, with about 20% of these falling into the unknown category. Our proposed trip to the Pacific to watch for UFOs during the H-bomb test was canceled at the last minute because we couldn't get space on an airplane but the crews of Navy and Air Force security forces who did go out to the tests were thoroughly briefed to look for UFOs, and they were given the procedures on how to track and report them. Back at Dayton, we stood by to make quick analysis of any reports that might come in. None came. Nothing that fell into the UFO category was seen during the entire Project Ivy series of atomic shots. By December, work on the planning phase of our instrumentation program was completed. During the two months we had been working on it, we had considered everything from giving Ground Observer Corps spotters simple wooden tracking devices to building special radars and cameras— We had talked over our problems with the people at Wright Field who knew about missile-tracking equipment, and we had consulted the camera technicians at the Air Force Aerial Reconnaissance Laboratory. Astronomers explained their equipment and the techniques to use, and we went to Rome, New York, and Boston to enlist the aid of the people who developed the Air Force's electronic equipment. Our final plan called for visual spotting stations to be established all over northern New Mexico. We'd picked this test location because northern New Mexico still consistently produced more reports than any other area in the U.S. These visual spotting stations would be equipped with a sighting device similar to a gun sight on a bomber. All the operator would have to do would be to follow the UFO with the tracking device and the exact time and the UFO's azimuth and elevation angles would be automatically recorded. The visual spotting stations would all be tied together with an interphone system so that as soon as the tracker at one station saw something, he could alert the other spotters in the area. If two stations tracked the same object we could immediately compute its speed and altitude. This visual spotting net would be tied into the existing radar defense net in the Albuquerque Los Alamos area. At each radar site we proposed that a long focal length camera be synchronized to the turning radar antenna so that any time the operator saw a target he could press a button and photograph the portion of the sky exactly where the radar said a UFO was located. These cameras would actually be astronomical telescopes so that even the smallest light or object could be photographed. In addition to this photography system, we proposed that a number of sets of instruments be set out around the area. Each set would contain instruments to measure nuclear radiation, any disturbances in the Earth's magnetic field, and the passage of a body that was giving off heat. The instruments would continually be sending their information to a central UFO command post, which would also get reports directly from the radars and the visual spotting stations. This instrumentation plan would cost about $250,000 because we plan to use as much surplus equipment as possible and tie it into existing communication systems where they already existed. After the setup was established, it would cost about $25,000 a year to operate. At first glance, this seemed like a lot of money, But when we figured out how much the UFO project had cost the Air Force in the past, and how much it would probably cost in the future, the price didn't seem too bad, especially if we could solve the UFO problem once and for all. The powers that be at ATIC okayed the plan in December, and it went to Washington, where it would have to be approved by General Samford, before it went to ADC and then back to the Pentagon for higher Air Force official blessing. From all indications, it looked as if we would get the necessary blessings. But the majority of the effort at Project Blue Book during the fall of 1952 had gone toward collecting together all of the bits and pieces of data that we had accumulated over the past year and a half We had sorted out the best of the unknowns and made studies of certain aspects of the UFO problem, so that when we could assemble a panel of scientists to review the data, we could give them the overall picture, not just a basketful of parts. Everyone who knew about the proposed panel meeting was eager to get started, because everyone was interested in knowing what this panel would have to say. Although the group of scientists wouldn't be empowered to make the final decision, their recommendations were to go to the president if they decided that the UFOs were real. And any recommendations made by the group of names we planned to assemble would carry a lot of weight. In the Pentagon and at ATIC, book was being made on what their recommendations would be. When I put my money down, the odds were 5 to 3 in favor of the UFO. End of chapter 14. Recording by Roger Meline.